Welcome to the first ever Evolutionary Leadership Podcast. My name is Gibran Rivera, and I am inviting you to be in conversation with remarkable people who have devoted their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. For this is the only way that our humanity will be able to meet the challenges that we currently face. I've known Cindy for almost 20 years, but most recently, she released her first book, The Power Manual, How to Master Complex Power Dynamics. Cindy works with leaders in the nonprofit sector, in philanthropy, and in social movements, including most recently with the Dreamers and with the Movement for Black Lives. She has written a book for our times. You see, the social movements of our day have a very conflicted relationship with power. We are endlessly deconstructing its evils while actively yearning for it. We forget that in any conflict, the tendency is to become the mirror image of your opponent. There is great confusion between the struggle for power and the quest for liberation. Cindy has written a comprehensive operations manual for living into the tension of these distinctions and for quite literally enacting our way to freedom. We had a phenomenal conversation and I'd love to know what you think. Enjoy. So I am talking to Cindy Suarez, author of The Power Manual, How to Master Complex Power Dynamics. And I have seen this book from concept into fruition due to our amazing friendship. <laughs> and what I'm blown away by and what I think is so important is uh, both of us have spent so much time in spaces uh that label themselves social movements, right? People that kind of self-conceive as reshaping our social structure. And what's interesting to me about that space is that there seems to be an adversarial relationship to power, a constant concern with power dynamics and how they play out, and simultaneously an anguish, a desperate thirst for power. So it's this contradictory relationship that yields all kinds of uh, awkward and often negative uh, dynamics among mm. people who are supposed to be on the same side. Mm. So to me, the book is so important and helpful because in no way do you deny, in fact, you point to the ways in which structural oppression plays out and how so many of us bear the burden of that. Mm. And at the same time, you are urging us to enact our own way into power. You're not only urging us to do it, but you're giving us an awesome set of tools and steps to reimagine how we are in the world as powerful people. Mm. And I think that is so necessary right now. Mm. And that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I think of you is what I call an evolutionary leader. And to me, those are people who are intentionally engaging uh, the evolution of consciousness and culture, which I think is the only way we are going to get out of the mess that we've created as a species. So I would love to hear uh, about this book, uh, what you're looking, what you're hoping that it brings into the world and where you are right now in relationship to your authorship. Wow, thanks. That's a really great intro. Um, and yes, I agree with everything you're saying. And um, I think that 
I found myself in spaces for years, decades even, where I didn't like the way that we treated each other. And, you know, there was a lot of um, confusion about how to be with each other and how that mattered in terms of what we were creating. And I've always studied power. And I, I, there was a point at which I started to really, I mean, I got so, you know, that I had to look at those questions more clearly because I couldn't continue doing the work. And I think for me, the book looks at, at all those issues of power and like, how do we engage power? Um, what's the different level of conversation than ideology? Um, I felt like the ideology was great and it had its limits. So this book ended up being about a lot of things, but I think it focuses a lot on interactions between people as the core space for change. Um, and that helped clarify a lot for me because all the ideology is complex. And I think part of what I got to after going to grad school for feminist theory and studying this, I mean, for so long, was that we needed to have a way to talk about it in simple ways. Like if, if it required people to <laughs> study that much, and it's most of it re written in theory language, that we were really not seeing those, those, that thinking coming into the work that was being done. So I really was looking at what was the more immediate space of power and it was interactions. And so the book really digs into that and just, I think, explores a whole world there and how that, the, the value and quality of your interactions, which can be named, which have lots of things that we can actually know about those, about those interactions, that that actually is what leads to the structures around mm -hmm. us. And it's not, I think in our sector, it's almost um, a religion to, to think of the ultimate change that we seek as systemic change. I think the idea of consciousness as a change is very new to our sector. So I've had to really figure out how to build that world out for myself and for people. That is, th that is great. Thank you so much. I can't wait to ask you more about consciousness. Um, and I want to know a little bit more about where you come from. How, how do you become so centrally concerned with this topic? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, I really can't remember a time where, where I wasn't. And so I kind of grew up feeling I had a purpose to look at this because it was all around me. I grew up in a working class home in Roxbury in Boston, which is a black neighborhood. It was originally in the South End when it was still a diverse neighborhood. Um, and I was a kid who paid attention, I guess, without really thinking. I just thought everybody did that, but maybe they do. But I paid a lot of attention to people and interactions between people and, I, and power. Um, and I don't know why that just always fascinated me as a kid. I think because I lived in a city where, you know, I remember, for example, a very clear, vivid memory is, you know, in the South End. I, I don't know if they changed this now, but it's actually the Back Bay South End now. And the Back Bay actually is where these are located. But there's a series of alleyways that go through the, the Back Bay, which is now a very high-income neighborhood in Boston, maybe always was. But as a kid, I remember that that space was distinctly different than the space that I lived in in Roxbury, which was just five minutes drive away maybe two miles. Um, and that space had a series of alleys. And my family, one of the things that we did was drive through those alleys and pick up stuff that other people threw away that was in good shape. And I remember I was so embarrassed about that. Uh, I read a lot and for some reason I felt that that was, my family wasn't embarrassed about it. So I was very like always paying attention to like, why are we going through other people's trash? And my, mom, and my mom and dad would say, well, this is good stuff. These people are crazy. They would throw away good stuff. 
stuff that my family could fix. And so I just remember that. And that to me became an emblem of the class worlds that I moved through as a kid, class and race worlds and, you know, language worlds. My, my home language was Spanish. Um, so, you know, what it meant that I spoke English better than I spoke Spanish because I went to schools that were in black neighborhood in us. So there was a lot of ways in which um, I was surrounded by difference. Um, I didn't have the terms for it then, but I was always curious about them. And it wasn't until I wrote the book that I realized that our relationship to difference is actually one of the core triggers of power dynamics, that we actually, that power dynamics tend to be triggered when we see someone as different, which is so mind-blowing, which goes exactly with what the the Savic scriptures say, like the Vedic scriptures, to be specific, you know, that difference is the beginning of, you know, losing full consciousness. So this idea of difference and how we relate to it um, I mean, we obviously are in difference because we are in a human body, and so there is difference. But it's our work as a human is our relationship to that difference. And so, uh, you know, I was curious about difference. I was attracted to difference. I realized afterwards that that wasn't the norm. So I started to pay attention to these things and also to the interactions that people would have with me when I talk, when I tried to share my experience of how I was seeing something. Um, so that shaped me a lot. And I think when I was a teenager... I always read a lot, and I remember there was a point at which I discovered literature. <laughs> Another class event that really shaped me was there was a Goodwill store. And I mean, my mom was an immigrant. She came here with me in her belly. I was a love child. Like, she had to move because I was here, and she needed to go somewhere where she could be a single mom. And so I remember we were, we were poor, working class. And I remember the weekly, weekly trips to the big Goodwill Memorial Goodwill store. It used to be on, on Berkeley Street. It's this big building. And it was, you know, it was actually a cool store. It had two floors. And in the bottom floor, there was a corner where all the books were. And all the books were 25 cents. And I could get four or five, maybe even six or eight books because they were like $2. And all the books had the covers torn off, which is what they do with books that get, I guess, become um, like... <laughs> I always wondered who would tear the covers off books like who would do that but I would walk out every time with a few books and because it was goodwill everything was there I would read Charles Dickens I would read beauty manuals I would read how-to books I just read everything and so I was just an avid reader there were no books in my home so I figured out ways to get them I go to the library and I remember as an eight-year-old I would ask the first time I went, I was like, oh, my God, I can just borrow all these books. And there's so many of them. And the first thing I asked is, how many can I take out at a time? I remember the woman said 14. And I was like, wow. So I would go every week, 14 books. I was this little kid carrying these books to the library. So, that, you know, so I, I sought that way of interacting with the world out, their mind, ideas, consciousness. Whatever wasn't around me in terms of my class was, a, was so freely available in books. So to me, these were people that I could talk to and hang out with. Mm. <laughs> so I didn't watch a lot of TV. My sister did, so I remember just kind of understanding that that was a thing that people did. But I, I mostly read. And by the time I was a teenager, I discovered literature. I read through all the canons. I'd discover a writer and be like, oh, my God, Toni Morrison, she has eight books. I'm going to read them all. And, I, you know, I just went on these crazy journeys. And then I discovered theory. I was probably 16 or 17. I think I started with Bell Hooks, um, moved on to Foucault. And then just, we just the, the worlds out there were just, and the more I read, the more my understanding of dynamics and power deepened. Um, and I went to college, I went to grad school, did feminist theory as a grad program, did a different grad program. When I came back out into the working world and the nonprofit world, I had all these experiences to, to, to integrate into my work. 
which for me was highly purposeful. Um, and it was deeply disappointing for the most part. I mean, I, I learned everywhere I was. I worked in so many different places uh, from, from neighborhood organizations that serve Latino communities to you know, advocacy groups, to women's groups, to eventually moving more into working with foundations and working eventually at a strategy center, which was actually a really pivotal time in my career. Um, because when I worked at the strategy center, Northeast Action was the first political strategy center in the US when I got there, it was probably 25 years old, and it had a lot of success, and it also had rigidified a bit into, um, you know, not really being able to share power kind of thing, where the people that started it, you know, mostly the white liberals that came to Vista Volunteer Programs of the 70s, had become now the establishment. So I came into it at a time where the whole organization, which was an organizing group, which was for me a new strategy at the time, I knew that there was service, advocacy, and organizing so that experience of working at an organizing strategy center where the focus is on shifting power was really pivotal also because it helped me think of the structures of how these things actually come in society and how organizations can organize and design for it or against it. So I just, I, I just felt like I was always in this really minute world, but for me it was vivid. There was language, there were frameworks, tools, processes, observations, and eventually I had to write a book. And, and I actually knew that I would write a book from when I was very young. And I think when I was 21 or so, I had a dream and I saw this book that I was reading and I remember the book was, I had just finished reading it. I was like, that was a good book. Who wrote that? And when I opened it, it said, had my name. I could almost even see the chapters. So I knew that I would write eventually. I knew that I would write later on after I'd learned whatever I needed to, you know, <laughs> um, integrate. And yeah. Thank you. You know, I want to, I'm so moved by your story um, because when one takes a kid that is living in a working class neighborhood whose family is doing a weekly round to the Goodwill store and another round to see what people threw away. The expected outcome is not to author a book. Much right? less one that's theoretical. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so something happened, right? That, or maybe something was always that made you interact with this reality in a way that was, for lack of a better word, more empowered, right? Like you have, you have actually enacted your own way mm -hmm. uh, into power mm -hmm. uh, out of a set of circumstances that from the outside would seem to be odds against you. Um, why is that? How is that? To me, it was the perfect situation for the kind of power and the kind of goal and consciousness I wanted to build in this lifetime. And I think I should back up and say that I do believe in multiple lifetimes and there's, there are different things over, over time. But I think from the very beginning, I felt I had a purpose. Um, I felt very confident. I remember I was as a kid, I used to read fashion magazines a lot. And I remember when I first started hearing and seeing the word lack of self-esteem, everywhere in the magazines. And I remember like thinking, what a wild concept. <laughs> like I had never thought of that, you know? So looking back, I see that in a way, I think I was born in a way feeling very um, powerful, I guess, or at least liking and trusting myself enough to not always in take in what was reflected back to me or to interpret it in different ways, which I think is due to imagination that comes from probably reading a lot. 
um, I think reading really, I mean, I think it's really imagination. <laughs> if you can imagine something, you can create it. Um, I think, yeah, for me, I, I, I had the sense that I was here and that I needed to write that that was my true purpose was to write. And I had a sense that it was about power. Uh, I, I was always into power in terms of reading about it and understanding my world, but I was also very into spirituality, which is something I should say. Um, I've always been, um, since I was a teenager, I, I meditated. I always read spiritual books, m- you know, metaphysics. I, I was always drawn to that, which is another space where there's a lot about power and being and, how, and supreme power. So I think there was just all around me these different concepts that engaged me as a kid and as a teenager. Um, so I think part of it was, I, you know, I think I came here to do that. And I think part of it was, um, over time there were different, cause the environment also impacts you. And I think there were times in which I had to make conscious efforts to become the person that I wanted to be for the, this next phase. So one thing I should share too, is I remember reading a book, it was by Gloria Steinem a long time ago in college. And she had this little picture that she painted, which was this process of imagining yourself walking in the woods and imagine the future self you want to be walking in front of you. And what does that future self look like? What is it doing? What does it feel? How is that person in the world? For some reason, when I read that book, which is really with anything, whenever there was a concept or an idea or feeling that touched my heart or my mind, it would simmer or shimmer and stand out to me. And wherever it was, whether it was in an interaction, in a book, in in a movie, and I, w- I would see those things as signs. So I think I always trusted this intuition that I la- later learned that I had. Um, one final thing I'll say about that is I, I did have someone do my charts, um, someone who's a very good chart reader. And I remember one of the things he said, which was just more recently in life, um, he, he said, your, your chart's really different than many of the charts that I've read. And I asked him why he gave me some details. But one thing that stood out to me was he said, you were a spiritual leader in another life. That's why some of these concepts come easily to you. And that made sense to me because by that point, I was probably 30, something, my early, you know, the late 30s. I remember realizing at that point that this knowledge and intuition and trust in yourself and confidence wasn't the norm. It certainly wasn't the norm for me. Right. <laughs> I had already learned that by then. So it made sense that perhaps there were other lifetimes in which I had developed this and that there was a reason why I came to the world oriented that way. What a, what a powerful perspective. I definitely want to dig in. I want to say that as we've had conversations throughout, but certainly and more recently since the book came out and as you've kind of begun to establish yourself in what I see as a new stage Mm-hmm. of your life. Uh, I often have said, mentioned to you that I think your next book should be on manifestation, <laughs> right? On, on taking what you dream of and making it real, which, which gets me into my question. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a little anecdote before I ask it, which is this year I facilitated, I hosted the fourth yearly evolutionary leadership workshop uh, out in Cortez Island. And I bring it up because something unique, there's always been... Um, let's call them medicine people that come. But this year, there seemed to be like a heft of medicine women in this space. And I was absolutely moved by the way that they, I want to say took over the space, but I want to say that in the, they did it in like the most respectful of ways. Like their presence was always there, but it, and it was always 
adding. It was never kind of redirecting away from the intended purpose. It was kind of reinforcing things. There was a beautiful kind of dance between us that allowed for this magical contribution. And there was sage in this space. There was sweetgrass in this space. There was Palo Santo in this space. There was always this underlying ritual. And, and I bring that up in this context because I feel like when you say things like spirituality or consciousness or multiple lifetimes, right, or lessons we were born with, it's not the exact same thing as what I saw at the workshop, but there's a connection. There seems to be, uh, a re, uh, a, for lack of a better word, a revival of our, of our engagement with the sacred or the magical. And, and what's powerful and intriguing about, about you is you have such a solid hold on the conceptual and theoretical, but you're living it from this kind of spiritual consciousness way. And I would like to tell you to tell me a little bit about how that comes about. Wow, yeah, that's really observant. Yeah, um, yeah, those are probably the two main thrusts in my life, I think, which is, shows up very much in my book. Um, I think... <sighs> I guess part of it for me is that there's so many ways I can answer that. One way, one simple concrete way to answer that is to say that a lot of social change work is about um, shifting power so that people can have more of what we all want in more fair and just ways. And that's, that's concrete and it has lots of, you know, it lives in the nonprofit sector and the social movements. But then there's this other power that comes from the focus of your energy and your attention, what you are seeking to create, um, how you are, um, what you imagine for yourself and others. And there's so much work to be done there, especially now. I think the sacred comes in lots of ways, but there are very practical ways that I, that I feel like I, for me, my sacredness, I mean, I do ritual, but a lot of my sacredness, the rigor for me is in how I live it, how I enact what I believe and I notice <laughs> really quickly when I when there's a space where I'm not being true to something that I say I care about or that I want to be um, and then I work with that and so there's this transformation from within so that whatever's coming at me while I do my work in the world while I write um, while I do consulting there's this other part of me that's also thinking about the world I'm trying to create but to me the, the, the discipline is in actually creating it on a daily, hour by hour, minute by minute basis, catching myself when I'm off and realigning. And after a while, you just, it's, it comes, you don't even notice it. You're just kind of flowing. And I think that's when the flowing happens, when you're just kind of seeing stuff, but you're also so centered that you're kind of like, and sometimes you get pulled into it and you're like, whoa, what happened to me? Why did I get pulled into this? Oh, wow, an opportunity to like, there's this, what we do is become more complex so that we can hold more so that we can be like those women that you're describing. To me, that's very, um, feminine energy. It's not dominant. It's not like seeking to to have power at the expense of others. It sees power as abundant. Um, and there, that's work for us to do, even just that one practice of not moving to the world as if there isn't abundance. And it's, it, when you spoke, it also made me think a lot of just the space, not just of social movements, but of feminists. And 
I have experienced, you know, feminist women that enact powerful dynamics that are very dominant oriented. Um, and, and for me, it, it, I feel a lot of these interactions in my body. I mean, we all do, but I think because I've been tuned into it, it can be overwhelming when I feel those contradictions because, and, and it's good. I want to feel them. I want to know when something's off around me. That's how you become more fine tuned to yourself and how you can really figure out how to respond when these moments in, in my book, I call them micro interactions, these moments where what we do either shifts the power dynamics or it reinforces them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you're trying to do that. And so one of the things I find too, is that there isn't a lot of subtlety in our, in our work, in our sector and movements about how to talk about language, that there's like these like norms or, 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 or ideologies or, you know, and, and everything's in context, right? There's, there, there's a nuance which I feel like we lack still as in, in the conversations we have about the world and about ourselves. Um, so that it's, you know, and a great example is, um, I, I recently wrote a story for a nonprofit quarterly where, where I work about what it looks like when people um, just don't pay attention. I think it was a story on Sarah Huckabee, which is actually kind of controversial, but there's this point at which we really must, must look at how we are enacting dominant power. And we can't, we have to stop turning away when someone helps us see that. Um, we have to learn how to language these dynamics in a more subtle way because the intersectionalities are so real. And as we become more, as Hart and Negri say, multiplicity overflows. There mm-hmm. cannot be contained by any ideology. There's always more than that ideology can hold. There's a different way for us to be, and it has to also be more simple. I am so happy um, you you bring this up because this was on my mind from the beginning of our conversation when you talked about uh, looking at the way power plays out in interaction, right? And so this is a, a big question I have for you, and, and you're pointing in that direction. So we become concerned with the way uh, power dynamics and, and patterns of domination start to play out at, in, in, at the kind of person-to-person level interaction, which I think is exactly the place that demands our attention. However, how I see that play out now, that analysis play out, is in this uh, in this whole discourse on, for example, microaggressions, right? And suddenly... Every, every interaction is laden with a structural power analysis that becomes very quickly paralyzing. Yes. Because what I think is happening is you're taking the structural analysis and trying to have it predefine how we are supposed to interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying. I just I, w- I would love your help teasing out what the distinction is between when when somebody like you says notice patterns of domination at the micro interaction level, and what happens when I'm facilitating and the entire uh, gathering uh, comes to a halt around the deconstruction of every single micro interaction. Okay, I know those two things are different. Yeah. But I don't know how to speak to that difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, they are different, I think. And I think part of it is orientation. And there, I think there are different 
core ideas in the book that weave together all the different concepts that hang off of it. And I think one of them is the idea of whether you have a powerful or a powerless identity. So and what that would mean in an interaction, and that's not a static thing, we are <laughs> fluctuating beings, but I think in interaction, there's a way that if you, or, or another way to say it is, a flip side of microaggressions it could be something like micro-welcoming or micro-something that's an openness. Micro-inclusion, I call micro-inclusion, it Micro-inclusion, right. Or something that allows you to, you know, it's almost like the question you can ask repeatedly is, does, is what I'm going to say or do next bring me closer or farther away from this person? Like, it's always valuing wow. the relationship over the ideological battle because we're so different in the idea that we even could have conversations with people given how much we live in worlds of our own making is a miracle to begin with. There's a certain humility when you really see the vastness of what people bring. If you consider multiple lifetimes, like a serious like humility because you're getting a sliver and you're also invoking that part in that person. So seeing yourself as being part of the dynamic, right? Like the idea that you did something to me takes away the power, what I did in that interaction. Um, and I think as I talk about in my book, there are two different goals in an interaction. You know, in interaction, there's times when we're dominant, times when we're subordinate. And that can shift based on anything, especially when you talk about, like, say, you're a Puerto Rican man, I'm a Puerto Rican woman, right? We're both Puerto Rican, but you're a man. I'm a, there's so many different ways that our power shifts. It could shift around what I know, how I am in the world, that can at certain times, you know, and I, the, the thing that happens with friends like us is that we allow ourselves to shift status back and forth. It, those things become more rigid, I think, when, we're, when you're not friends. Friends are people that you can't shift, that, that everything's so guarded that you have to actually negotiate so much explicitly. Um, but I think it's, it's a whole world. It's like, and honestly, I mean, there are times when I, I mean, if I think about one way of noticing this is how do I walk down the street? Am I just as friendly to different classes of people or do I, am I friendlier towards people of color? Do, am I surprised when a white person smiles at me? Like, frankly, yes. You know, why? Do I never smile first? Frankly, I used to never be the person that smiled first. Why? Because that's my conditioned response in society. In watching my mother-in-law who's biracial and who's a Baha'i and they're really conscious about racial mixing and how to interact across these differences I would always notice when I was out with her that she would say hi to everyone and I was like wow what a free way to be in the world so I start to see what it looks like to be free moments of people being free and I aim towards freedom in my interaction rather than I don't know, doing whatever to the other person. And if I offer something, to, it's, I've gotten to the point where I, I don't offer much anymore. And I, I, I've had some friends almost tell me or, or say, you know, like, what do you think about this? And you can tell me what you think about this. What do you think about what I'm doing? And I notice I don't do that much anymore. I, I, don't, I don't feel that's my role in the interaction to judge what the other person is doing, to have an analysis about it or to have um, discernment about their situation. Um, my primary goal in an interaction is just to listen and to try to understand, like, what am I feeling when this person is talking? What's going on for this person? Um, the idea of acting or having an opinion or sharing it, like, a priori, it's just, you know what I mean? So it's just different ways of being, which are really more curious um, about difference and about your own reaction to something and how... So when I walk away from a situation where I may feel it wasn't a successful interaction, which I talk about in my book, the goal is to have successful interactions. The goal for the dominant in an interaction 
is to, you know, make space for the other. Like, and you make space for the other by not asserting your opinions forcefully. When you say something as if it just is, because it just is, that's one of the dominant patterns, which I outline in the book as well. There are dominant ways of being. And I started to see that almost run, running rampant in our sector and in movements. So being aware of what it means to be dominant, that when you state your reality in a way that doesn't make room for someone else's, to me, that almost tells me so much about you in that interaction. And that shapes how I interact with you rather than necessarily what you say. I find myself oftentimes moving away and moving towards. So I started to pay attention to what draws me and what moves me away. People who are judgmental move me away, which is different from discernment. We, we do have to be aware. We do make choices. And the whole section of my book is about choices and discernment. But that's different from judgment, which has value attached. There's a certain, um, I don't know. I just don't want to be that way in the world. This is, this is I, what you're saying, uh, Cindy, and I know you know this, but I say it for the listeners, uh, is radical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's specifically important coming out of your lived experience and your embodiment, right? You're like a, you are a working class black Puerto Rican woman, right? And so for you to enter the world uh, in a way that says, I'm not going to centralize victimhood in order to achieve freedom. That is so counter to the central thrust of the space that currently claims the name of social movements. And and I've been being more careful these days to, to name it that way, claiming social movement, claiming social change, because somehow, because it's claimed, we say, well, it's theirs. But if it's not happening, if it's not actually getting us the freedom, then maybe the name is not deserved. Maybe you don't just get to call yourself a social movement because you want to rock a label. Uh, And I feel like these spaces uh, really center uh, victimhood and the kind of uh, lack of nuance or uh, the judgmental assertion of truth that, 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 that you're talking to. I, I, I'm sorry if I got a little abstract there. But anyway, I'm just really moved by, by what you're saying and by the fact uh, that it's coming out of your own lived experience. One of the things that I think is important is, again, this, this kind of consciousness of or way in which we self-conceive, mm-hmm. in which we understand ourselves. And I wonder, are there... So, so, so there, let's say I was not born after a thousand lifetimes of learning the lesson of self-confidence. Uh, are there practices, are there tools that I could take on to reorient my consciousness away from one which is continually aggrieved and violated by an unjust world into one that gives me the agency necessary to enact my way to freedom? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what my book is about and it's a really pointed question that gets at the root of it, which is that a lot of this is developmental. Um, And 
you know, it was a realization I had early on when I was writing the book and designing it was that what I was actually saying, what it takes to be free actually requires a lot. It's no different than the freedom and liberation that they speak of in the Vedic scriptures. They're spiritual. That's a spiritual consciousness. They're actually the same thing, whether you're thinking of it in spirit or in, in, in concrete material reality. There is a developmental aspect to it. So people are where they are. And I think that that is one of the most, I mean, the, you always have a choice whether to expand or to contract. So there were a lot of it comes from watching your choices, watching what you do. To, I mean, simply studying consciousness. There's so much out there. Um, but I think once you pose a simple question to yourself, like, how do I become more powerful? You ask yourself that question. The universe is like the biggest worldwide, you know, information system. You will just have access to it. Things will come to you. You will attract that. So like the most powerful thing we have is our, is our energy, our consciousness, our attention, to be specific. And, you know, I talk about this as a central theme in my book that we work really hard for our, for our energy, which is what we use in our attention. Whatever we give attention to, your mind, your thinking uses up a lot of your glucose. Actually, from what I understand, it's what uses it up the most, how you think about something. So when you think about how hard we work in order to build our supply of glucose, like we go to school, we learn, we get jobs, we have a home, we build all these things so our bodies can sustain themselves. On a concrete level, we can eat food and we can actually have health and have what we need so that we can create this resource that we then expend in the world in, our, in terms of our attention. Whatever we give our attention to grows. If you realize that as a basic universal law, then you're way more careful with your attention and what you give it to. You notice you have a choice in whether you want to fight this person or make a bigger space for you both. Which one is going to expand your energy? They actually, your choices actually expand your energy or contract them. You can use it up or not. I mean, they did, they did experiments on this where, where they give somebody something to do that's hard. They're, they're um, pupils dilate because your body uses so much energy that your body is on full alert. As you do the same thing over time, it doesn't. So mastery allows you to use the same energy to accomplish more. That's your life force. Whether what you create in the world and what you don't create in the world is totally related to what you pay attention to. Wow. What you pay attention to in your interactions with people. Because people are your connection. They're a part of you if you don't see them as different. So the access that you have to abundance grows and your energy grows. So it's whether you want to live a life that's generative, which means it grows, you, you are fed, you feed people, there's just this positive cycle, or whether you want to live in where you're taking away, which takes away from you. If you ever notice, when you walk away from a situation where you've been talking badly about someone, your energy goes down. All right, so there are the ways we use our energy affect our body and, and, and use it up in certain ways. Um, and ultimately, we build that which we, you know, so the, the more I realized that, the more it became really clear about what was important to me and what I was going to spend my energy on. And what I've noticed is that I have to be really careful because the more you become aligned internally that way so that your energy is that focused, the more what you want happens quicker because more of your energy is aimed towards what you're... It's not spilling and wasting. You know, So if you want to think of yourself as a, as a system of energy, then how you interact and how you perceive and how you pay attention, what you pay attention to... Even the concepts, you can do the same work in really different ways. This is, this is so good, uh, and it's so resonant. I, I again want to thank you. 
there is, uh, you know, this idea. Well, I, I often say that the highest vibration in the interaction is responsible for the interaction. Right. So exactly. my job is to see how, how can I take responsibility for this interaction by elevating my heart's vibration. Right. And, and I appreciate how you uh, spoke of the dominance role. So in this case, the highest vibration could technically, quote unquote, be the dominant role. Right. But it is actually being placed in service. Right. Rather than asserting like you were saying earlier, are saying this is the way instead I'm actually going to try and make room for what is emergent among us. I'm actually going to use my power, power that I've cultivated over time in service of the interaction, not just in service of my domination. So that's yeah. one of the I things. I would like to distinguish that though because I think in, there are ways that we don't acknowledge mastery when we look at um, egalitarianism as a goal. Right. So there is mastery. There are certain people who are just further along. I have a guru who's realized she's a master. I recognize that. So there's a way to balance. You, there's, a, there's ways to be when you have accrued that much power that tries to be continuously tapped in so that you're servicing. That is, I don't necessarily, it contends towards domination if we're not careful, but there is also mastery, which what I'm trying to say is that we don't need to fail to acknowledge when That's someone great. has that power. It actually, if you see people that have that, one of the easiest ways to have it is to tap into that part in them. So when you really look at it and it's not like a competition, there's abundance, you can recognize mastery. That is so beautiful. That is actually very helpful for me in my own personal life. And I can see how sometimes um, because of the kind of structural analysis approach, you see somebody that has mastery um, kind of having influence over a space and you might try to bring them down because you're considering their gift some kind of dominating structure because you're not feeling your way into what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. um, so I find, I find that powerful. I also find powerful this mantra that other teachers have been speaking uh, to more frequently. I'm thinking immediately of Adrian Marie Brown, the idea that whatever you give your attention to is what grows. And then the question that, then the idea that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. So I'm here thinking as somebody as far, far out from us as Tony Robbins, who always repeats this thing, right? And I can ask, why is, why is life so unfair? And now I have an entire structure and analysis to answer that question. But I can ask, how can I be more powerful? And then the, the world of my attention will start to organize itself around that information. Both questions might be dealing with the same situation, but what, they're going to yield very different results. And I, I just really appreciate. And can I say, I think that the second one is, is really the power of it can't be underestimated. You can be in a space where you aren't, speaking the dominant language because you see you this happens this happened to me so many so many times in, in the space of the decades that I've done nonprofit work where I'm in a room and I'm just not feeling it you know there's like it could be all women but there's like there's like a lot of stumbling because we haven't gotten to the point where we feel masterful or powerful and there's these dynamics that are playing out and I'm sitting there observing it right and I know that the work that we're here to do is going to kind of like <laughs> maybe happen maybe not and I know that if I say something, 
it'll come out of left field because it's not where most people are in the room. And I've noticed that sometimes even not saying anything is so powerful. Like just being in the room and bringing energy to the room, holding the room, even having an image you're holding while this is happening. There's so much that you can do to be in a space and be powerful no matter what is happening. And part of what I, in, in, in the Vedic scriptures, being free means being able to be anywhere and to feel free. Mm-hmm. So I see those moments where I'm triggered, um, which are less and less, but then when they happen, I'm like, whoa, what? what? You know, I, I've grown to be really curious about where I'm triggered and like why, um, because I'm really trying to be free. so a trigger to me is like not really being free and and the more I practice that the more um I live there and I I I notice that it's it's not that hard to go into a space and transform it even if everyone's acting totally different when you're aligned because it's not just the most powerful energy it's the most aligned energy the most pure energy you don't even have to do anything that's the powerful part that's so beautiful you know for me I often refer to it as uh I think of that as the evolutionary thrust. That's one of the words I use for that alignment, right? I, and the way I, I conceive of it is entropy is actually the pattern of the universe, right? So I often ask people, is it harder to keep your room, your bedroom or your office put together or messy, right? It, it moved towards messy. You got to be somebody like you, <laughs> right? Where the mess is and it will never happen, right? <laughs> But if that takes energy, for you it's natural now, but it takes energy and effort and attention to keep things aligned because even in, in a baby's born and they're like all life force, all energy. And then by the time you start to come into our age, you start to see like entropy come in. So, so entropy is the majority. And somehow in that entropy, in that universe that's organized around entropy, there's this aliveness. There's this directionality, this development, this evolution that's happening. So I often think about aligning ourselves with that evolutionary thrust. But I wanted to ask you a question. Um, You were talking about the way your body feels in a space that might not be aligned, right? Mm -hmm. And you were talking about what I understood to be a very powerful posture to take in that space Mm -hmm. that might not even include speaking, right? Mm -hmm. But you are doing work. You're holding the space. You're holding an image. And even your silence is helping to shape that space. I want to distinguish that. Uh, and I, want to, I would like to ask you to help me distinguish that from... I know a lot of amazing people who are highly empathic. And there's an, a whole discourse right now about what it means to be an empath, right? And people speak about being in spaces and their body's not feeling well and they're becoming attuned with that. And I think that's magic and important and it's like uh, where so much information is. So I really want to be clear that I think this is an overall positive move. Mm-hmm. The question that I have though is sometimes I see that that energy and that discourse move towards what I call what a kind of fragility, and it's almost like I am feeling walloped by the energy in this room. And mm-hmm. that is the way in which uh, generations of structural oppression are playing out right now. And I cannot even stand to be in this meeting 
one more moment that so much of there's so much truth in that and yet their underlying energy uh, to me remains one that centralizes victimhood and that uplifts fragility as a as a state that will somehow move us towards justice. So how do you distinguish between one and the other? In both cases, we're trying to tune into what our bodies are telling us about what's actually going on. Yeah, that's really important. Um, I think a few things. One is that it shifts responsibility when somebody does that. Suddenly now everybody else is charged with fixing this for this person. Um, yeah. We're all vulnerable. That's not something to lay claim to. I mean, you, you could, but, you know, I mean, I, I feel like in a space like that, and I remember there's a real reality to that, which, again, is developmental, right? So it helps to, to help, especially if, if, if this is the kind of work you're doing with people who are experiencing this, help people understand their choice and the developmental choice. Um, and even doing that in a, in a way, because that may not be received well, but... I know for myself when I first, I mean, I've always been pretty um, aware and I didn't realize that was a thing until I was told, oh yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> the same person that did my charts to me told me, you're very intuitive, extremely psychic. And I thought, oh, I thought everyone just picked up information. It's like, yeah, people can turn it off or develop it depending on what they do. For me, it's very tuned up or turned up. So I feel like I understand. And the more I dealt, went into that in my spiritual work, especially, um, because there's a way in which there's a connectedness to the world, which is what you're seeking. And part of that is you do become really in tune. And I remember at the time that I was going through this um, challenge in my life, really at, at, a heads, at a heads, was that I was working in an organization where I was going through a racial justice shift change process. And I was also getting to that point where I had opened myself up so much, but I hadn't really figured out how to protect myself. Um, I had three miscarriages in a year. Wow, I am um, so sorry to hear this. That was the impact of being in a space that had that much toxic energy and being that open. So there's a real reality for wow. people that are experiencing that. That at the time, it's like not like you know. Hmm. Like you can't, you don't want that to be happening to you. You just notice that it is. And then you have to figure out. I remember after that, I was like, oh. And I was very clear that I was too open, that I had, that I had opened and now I needed to do something else. I needed to become more I needed to have like some sort of boundaries to protect my bigness and my openness. I had no idea how to do that. I never have any idea oftentimes about what I'm going to do next. <laughs> I just realized that something that I've been doing may not be working anymore. And it triggers a question. And, I, and then my, for me, it was, how do I protect myself? How do I be this connected, but also protect myself? Um, that became a years of journeying, I'm not saying that I'm done, but it's, I don't feel that way anymore. I can be in a room and feel that and feel it around me. I don't feel it overwhelming me. I feel myself having just as much ability to impact that energy and to shift it and move it, to feel it, to engage it, to shift it and move it. I am not a victim to it. So there is a developmental piece to it. And I think it makes sense for people to bring that up. It's been something that people haven't been able to speak about for a long time. And one of the things that I've been really moving more into in my writing at Nonprofit Quarterly around this kind of power and race stuff in the sector, where she really hasn't made a lot of shift in spite of all the talk and energy and resources gone to it for the last 30 years, is, um, you know, what, what are the submerged narratives that are trying to erupt? I see that there are these the dominant narratives are falling apart. There's a lot of effort to reinforce them. And then there are these narratives that are submerged that are trying to emerge. So if that's the space 
And again, it's whether you're attracted to that or not. If something, if you're not attracted to that, that's not your work. For a lot of people, they could see that and be like, oh, there's this emergent thing. And people are right here, right now, vulnerable. As a person who facilitates this kind of space, I'm, I am aware of what they're going through and I can help them on their process. So I think it almost calls for, it creates a space for facilitators who do this kind of work to explicitly be able to inform the community of the process of development of powerful consciousness and to be able to do that in groups. Powerful. I actually would love to work with people on that. I feel like it's, I mean, I've done, I do a lot of consulting and, and I, right now I'm mostly writing, but if I do work, that's the kind of work I want to do. I want to help tap into the way people reorient their energy and become conscious and take masterful control of it and can direct it. This is so beautiful. I, I, I feel... I feel the need to pause for a second just because, you know, sometimes we have this intense, uh, I don't, I don't want to put a label on your experience, but I'm going to use, say, traumatic experiences, and we work through them, and so then we can speak about them so openly. But, you know, you just spoke about three miscarriages in a year, and I just want to pause there. There's something so painful and so sacred and so feminine about it and so so indicative of how the worlds and systems that we're creating are against life. And it's unique to me, not unique, it's, it's important to know that this all, it's all happening as you're working within a social change, social justice organization. I just need to pause, and, and, and I know we've been in conversation and relationship about this, but I just needed to pause and feel that, honor that, uh, honor your experience and the sacredness of it. Thank you for doing that. It actually was exactly that. The conditions around me were death-making, <laughs> and my fetus couldn't survive it. Yeah, yeah. It's, so. it's, it's heartbreaking. And what is mind-blowing, though, is your stance. So you're saying, how do I protect myself, right? You're not saying, how am I protected? How do I make sure... And it's not that being protected is not right. I want to I create a world that is conducive to life. Mm-hmm. And especially one that is safe for women, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I want that. I want that. There is something about your stance that, again, refuses to centralize victimhood. Yeah. And that's what's so moving and inspiring about your book and about your life. And that's kind of what I want to yeah. keep looking into here. I actually, you're right. I, it's, it, I always seek where my power is in the, in the opportunity or in the interaction or in the event. Um, I just oriented that way. I think we can learn to be oriented that way. But for me, the idea of orienting towards something else other than the light or whatever is powerful. It, you're right. It, it is a stance. And, and, I think part of it comes from, I, as a young working class girl, I, I have the luxury of feeling protected. So mm-hmm. the sense of being protected is, geez, it's, just, it's not the primary concept, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I know like a lot of times I'm in spaces where people talk about not feeling protected. Um, or, or especially like, you know, white folks that don't feel protected when people start talking about race or wanted to create a safe space for something as if. Um, so yeah, I think that's a very tenuous space of, of, yeah, we shouldn't 
we should be in community and be protected. Some of us don't know what it's like to be protected. Mm-hmm. Some of us are not protected by even those closest to us. And it's not because they don't want to, it's because it's not how they're oriented. Right. Especially towards women of color, you know, um, working class women of color. The more you see someone as different or, you know, or is not worthy of a certain type of interaction or engagement, you could be in a relationship with them as a partner and, and not protect them. Wow. So protection is many leveled. And I, I, I have found that for myself. Um, I think there's a part of me that thinks that's a cool thing to have and I, I welcome it, but I don't rely on it. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But this might be a a tangent that I don't want to go too far down it, but I know you're a mom and a careful mom, careful and caring for the kids. Uh, I'm a dad. Uh, I heard an interesting connection between this kind of campus fragility, right? Where you need a trigger warning before reading a book, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm thinking, contrasting that to you getting books at the Goodwill store, right? Like, mm. I'm sure there were no trigger warnings on any of those, right? Um, that kind of frailty uh, and demand for protection, I heard somebody describe it as a byproduct of helicopter parenting. Mm. So the kids are now so u- like so used to being protected by adults at all times, having every experience monitored, that they go into a space where they're supposed to be free for the first time, and instead what they're saying is, you... Authority structure, you dean of students, you protect me from the feelings that I don't want to have mm-hmm. as I'm coming into my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interactions that are bought. So, uh, do you make that link? Like that, this kind of demand for, or even the use of the word, uh, the overuse of the word trigger for anything that is uncomfortable or upsetting as if those were not things that we had to contend with in our development. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because that's both a a sign of privilege and a protective stance that some people may need to take. Um, So I think a lot of it has to do with what's going on around. But, you know, I do have a daughter who who's now 19 and is in college and yeah, all these things come into play. I hear about these things from her classes and, you know, and, and how I raised her. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think I did give her um, a sense. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is that the way that we learn real, real safety is in how um, our community responds to us as we're, when we're little, as we're growing up and as we try to make demands on it. Does it allow us to? You know, what happens when we're hurt, you know, so and this is really gets down to like a neurological level and you see a lot of it. Like if you see, you know, if you're in a situation, so so when a kid is hurt as a parent, one of the most important things you could do is just to, you know, rub them, like to soothe them, because what they're actually learning when you're doing that is you're teaching their nervous system to calm down and eventually they don't need you. They'll learn how to self-calm. But imagine if you have a parent that never does that to you. Imagine if when you're upset, when you make demands, your parent shuts you down because your parent doesn't have whatever it is that is needed to give that to someone else for whatever reasons. And say you grow up and you don't have that ability to self-calm. I mean, one of the most core things about us as humans is that we live in bodies and our bodies can be a hell for us. 
So there's a lot of mastery that also goes into how you are in your body and in particular how you handle anxiety and how do you modulate your, your body and your mood. And that's an industry. I mean, people are in the presence. There's so much that we do to modulate our moods. Um, so there's a carefulness about care and protection that to me at the real level, you should be able to. I mean, it's not something that, I mean, your context may or may not give it to you, but you learn how to do that in meditation, right? There are different ways that you can learn to soothe your body. It's like some people have very anxious minds and it's like soothing your body and soothing your mind. Like that's, a, that's the kind of skill that allows your energy not to get frittered away. But it's part of this care. And I think that when you grow up and you have that, you grow up feeling like when you need something, you can get it. You can ask for something and have it be engaged. You also have boundaries. Like you're, you're engaged as an authentic human and really cared for. You can be in risky spaces and it doesn't feel so risky. And I think part of what this brings to, to light is like what really is privilege, right? Like there's privilege in class and money and whatever, but what you see a lot of the times is that those aren't really privileged lives. To me, a real privileged life is a life where you can be in risky situations and feel like you can go through it, where you can see the purpose of it and move through it with meaning or purposefulness or whatever it is. If you don't go through these shifts, you don't, you can't, you're always shifting. You're always consciously shifting something that can feel traumatic. Shifting to a higher consciousness to a bigger person is not an easy thing to do, which is why a lot of people don't do it, but you always have a choice. And so it's not so much, I mean, I think part of what we need to do is almost like reframe some of these frames so that we're really asking like, what do people need to live in a world where there's increased difference? You know? What a good question. What a good question. Thank you so much. One of the things that I like about your work, uh, 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 let me go with this metaphor here for a second, but when I react to this, what I'm calling, um, augmented fragility and i'm not just talking about it it's easy to talk about white fragility i'm talking about uh the oppressed and 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 the can the constant like oh my god that word has now sent me into trauma and i'm gonna need 10 years of therapy like that that kind of like um when i think about that stance i often in my most annoyed times compare it to think about malcolm x and i'm like Malcolm X, that's how I became politicized, right? Reading the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was 15, 16. He's rolling over in his grave. Like, his whole point was for us to be powerful and autonomous and self-sustained and take a, a defiant stance in the world. And yeah, there was all kinds of like hyper-masculine things about it and imperfect in a thousand ways. But this, this, this kind of demand for us to understand our own dignity, our own power, and to stand in the world that way, there was, not, there was nothing more threatening to the power structure than black folks starting to take that stance, right? So when I think about the current kind of fragile, uh, discourse of fragility and experience of fragility, I'm like, wait a minute, like, I don't see how one leads to the other. And when I read your work, and I'm, when I'm in conversation with you, you are the more, like, a, a significantly more sophisticated, definitely more feminine version of let us kind of cohere ourselves into our own power. Let us take responsibility for the state of our own consciousness. Let us engage in human interaction in a way that is liberating, not just to myself, but to the other, right? That's, that's kind of the, the message 
that I'm getting from you. I'm also getting in this conversation, and I and I and I resonate with it, an understanding that it is a developmental process. Mm. And so when I when I am not annoyed, when I am uh, more awake, uh, I look at it that way. I'm like, rather than being annoyed at this stance, how can I look at it as a developmental stage, something that we need to go through as we wake up to the way in which we have been structurally oppressed for generations? And how do I start looking for ways to move beyond it? Right, like, and I, and I, and I think you you're showing us some pathways, mm-hmm. pathways that honor, and the stance and the experience and the perspective, but also demand mm-hmm. that we move beyond it. What are some of the best tools? What are some of the best ways in which using individuals or groups or organizations, whatever the right example is, get beyond the stuckness of the dominant discourse right now? Well, wow, there's a lot. I think I'll name a few. I think as you're talking, I, especially because I, as I know you're a, faci- a facilitator of these spaces and you've been doing this for so long and you're so great at it. And I think that, you know, part of it, a few things. First, I can imagine, you know, Peter Block talks about the invitation we make when we're trying to create certain spaces that people like you, maybe that's just your, your thing is to create these spaces and to be clear about the spaces you're creating. So that when people get you, Bron, this is what they're getting. And it's almost like, it can be almost like uh, the opposite of what people think should happen in social space spaces where you don't think where mastery may not be recognized. But you can set the conditions for the spaces that you're going to be in so that people, or at least and say, these are the these are the things that I'm going to be guiding the group by. And one of them can be, it's almost like imagine like when you do a lot of these group, you know, projects or processes, there's always like, you know, whenever somebody like you comes in, for example, a trained facilitator, there is a, a setting of context and rules and how we're going to be together in space. So you already do that. So just using that differently probably would be an interesting, like when people, you know, maybe you could start with three that are very over encompassing. And then when people add theirs, it, see if they orient towards these three, because you're trying to create a space focused on power. I think if we're clear about what we're trying to create, that people will go into it. Some people may go into it and not be fully into it, and it's okay. That's, you know, they can choose to be in it, and you can be in conversation about the actual thing that's happening, right? But there's ways of making conscious, to submerge conscious that you're trying to be bringing into the space by how you set the context, the content, the container. I think also, I think about what does it mean that you're getting annoyed, right? It could be that you don't have enough of something else that you need. I find myself having very similar reactions. I find myself yearning to be, to have a crew that is thinking like that. Because it's one thing to do that all the time, to, to, to be that person in spaces that's carrying that or that's trying to bring that energy into the work. But then how do you get replenished? So it's also validating what your body's telling you about what's happening for you. And so when you get what you need, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? There's, that's so beautiful. So there's something about feeding yourself. I've been feeling that as well. Um, I, I often feel like I'm talking a different language when I'm talking to a lot of people, um, even the most powerful people in the work um, that I interview or, you know, whenever there is a resonance, it's very like, oh, I recognize someone who's kind of thinking. And oftentimes when I start to put these things into words in my writing, either in the book or an MPQ, there are lots of people for whom that resonates and they thank me. They say, oh, my God, I've been like, I've thought about this, but I didn't have the words for it. So there are people that will be attracted to that. And I think there is... And the people that are in, in the different space, you know, that's where they are. And they can be conscious that they're in that space and that there's this other state they can be in as well. Sometimes people don't know what the next state is, you know. So there's a lot 
in terms of the actual concrete things, frameworks, tools in the book, that's, it's all about that. So they are the most, at the most elemental level there, it's what does it take to consciously drive your own change? It takes noticing what's happening, being able to connect it to memory, to be able to reflect on the meaning of it and to figure out what you're going to do as a result. Wow. So there are these different steps at a social level. There are at least three steps to really being able to create the world you want. There is, you know, what are the what are the signs of power or that you're trying to shift? What what is it? So there's an, an ability to recognize what something means. And the sign could be someone saying something in a group. We can say, oh, this is a sign of what happens. Like you start to recognize the patterns. When this happens, people do this. So people can see themselves and start to really be aware of their process. So there's understanding what are the signs. In any situation, there are signs, and that can be anything, a symbol. It could be a statement, a, the, the, the look, like whatever you see capturing what's happening. The fact that the office walls are blue instead of red, what does that mean for us? We actually chose that color for a reason at my job. You know what I mean? There are signs. Talking about the signs and what they mean, because there are the signs that are really powerful that hold a lot of meaning, so finding those. And then being able to deconstruct signs, like start to understand the relationship between the signs, what does it mean when you say that you can't go on in this meeting? So the fact that people, what happens oftentimes in a, in a group setting is that when we're talking about power and we're getting to the level that we're getting is that people get triggered. What, what happens? How do you know they got triggered? The signs of it are you start to feel this way. You start to feel this way. What are the options that you have when this is happening? You can tell the group this is how you feel and make a moment so that other people have to figure out what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. What does that do? It holds the group back. What are other options? So it's kind of like being able to open up this space so that people become aware but it also means looking at that as the work sometimes we think that's not the work there's other work we're here to do so we don't have time to do with this <laughs> and i think what some people are saying is this is what's happening and that's actually maybe the most important thing if that's what the energy is and that's what the block is maybe it's not it could you know those are calls that people make sometimes certain people choose to do that and other people want to continue to work on what they're so what i try to do is not try to get people to have to agree that we all have to do the same thing because then we get stuck on what what person is experiencing. So deconstructing, like what does it mean that we're putting these signs together? And then the third step is being able to create a new story. Mm-hmm. So okay, this happened. Is there a do, is there a better story? Is there a more powerful story that we can make out of what happened? So guiding the group through those kind of um, processes of how to orient themselves towards trauma and towards power because I feel like that's right now people are playing with power without understanding the difference between dominant power and liberatory power, which I, st- I think I make that clear in the first chapter, that there are two different types of power. If you don't even know that, then you're like walking around wielding dominant power thinking that you're actually a victim, when in reality you're actually also wielding dominant power. So there's just so many ways that we hide our power. Um, you know, I've been reading this book, Sadomasochism in Everyday Life, and there's this like idea that sadomasochism is part of how we structure societies in, in the sense that there's a dominant and a sub- submissive. And that the submissive, what, what it does is not never recognize their power. You know, so do you notice that you don't recognize your power? That this is something that you do? Do you do does this happen often? But I, I, I haven't seen anybody do that. You know, I That's think it would so be good. really powerful. Um, and then there's actually at the end, there's an exercise and there's more in the book, but there's an exercise at the end. Um, about how to deconstruct a character with you being the character. And this comes from acting. A lot of this most amazing work around changing who you are comes from that world of acting. Um, so yeah, you can, there's two. There's a, there's, a, there's a game where you can deconstruct an event 
and one where you can de deconstruct the character as if it was a play. But you're looking at your character and asking yourself these questions about that character. What does that character really want? What's in the way? What can that character do? Because in acting, that's what you have to figure out in your interactions. Every character is driven by something that they're trying to accomplish, and there might be something they see as an obstacle, mm -hmm. and they're trying to overcome that to get what they want. That's what drives the story. Same thing in our life. So becoming conscious of it and taking pride in being the writer and not the actor on stage that doesn't realize there's a stage around you. This is, this is excellent. Uh, it, it's good medicine. Uh, uh, it's so much of what you've said resonates so deeply and, and will even influence uh, some of the things that I practice. I have, I have played with this high threshold invitation. I, I find that I need to be, it to be more detailed. So for example, I said, don't come if you're into movement fundamentalism. This is not a space in which we're going to be policing each other. That's helpful, but I feel like I've got to be more thorough. I really appreciate you inviting me to notice why am I annoyed? What is the information that that's giving me about where I am? And I'm, I'm taking more care of paying attention to that. I think this is... Uh, and then the whole idea of the science, I've often thought about uh, kind of literally setting up a bunch of Lego figures and showing people how the dynamic plays out in every single space that I'm in all the time so that they say, stop thinking we're so unique. We're just kind of playing into a pattern that keeps repeating itself and none of us is taking responsibility to change the way it plays out. We're not, we're not taking the care to write a different story. So the, the, the work and the perspective is, is incredibly resonant. I am. I want to share one more thing before you go. It just made me think of this. There, some of the exercises in the book speak to this. So one of the things that you do, for example, like there's an exercise where you can have. This is with two people where you can have. Let's have a, a series. We're going to go back and forth, and I'm going to say something, and whatever I say, it's going to be bringing you down or bringing you up. And you can either do it so that you're always bringing one person down, one person up, or you're toggling. And it's to get us to be aware of what we actually mean by what we say. So that's what I mean about the exercises that teach people about what's actually happened in interactions and how, the, how power is playing out can actually be very con made conscious by looking at how people, I mean, all, the, all my exercises are about this. They're about the embodied ways that we play different power stances. So when people be become, have language for that, I think that in and of itself changes the possibilities. That's phenomenal. And that's what I like so much about, about your book. It's about enacting freedom, literally acting our way into it. And I think that's just genius and exactly the kind of practice that, that is going to get us closer to where we want to go. I'm, I'm moving us towards a close uh, with a lot of inspiration and with deep gratitude and, and looking forward to, to more of these, actually, because I feel like we've only skimmed the surface. Uh, so I'm really appreciating it. I'm going to take what's going to seem like a left turn just to, to be close, but it's a commitment I've made to myself as I interview people like you uh, and I'm, in this case I'm thinking of you through the lens of a very powerful woman right and uh, one of the work pieces of work that I'm uh, focused on is what I'm calling the better man project mm -hmm. right uh, helping if, if, how to be a better man in a in a post me too world right and uh, mm -hmm. the idea that we have a very developed discourse on toxic masculinity mm -hmm. but that there is such a thing as conscious masculinity mm -hmm that it's not just about eliminating masculinity or making masculinity the same as patriarchy, mm. but it's about taking masculine energy and making it conscious. So it's work I'm very passionate about, um, work that I'm doing on myself and work that I'm doing with others. And so my, one of my commitments is when I talk to somebody like you is, what do you want men to know? 
about how to be. Just in general? In relationship to women. In a patriarchal world. Like, what is the thing that we need to be aware of? What are the, what are the moves that we need to make in order, in order to tackle this horror um, that patriarchy is yielding and has been yielding for so long? You know, it's interesting. I, I, it's a really complex question. I think what, the simple thing that came to mind when you said it was goddess. Like, mm. there's something about orienting towards the goddess and learning about the goddess. And that is just like a quote, because that could be like so many different things. The goddess in themselves. And to see the goddess in women, even if that goddess is crushed, like look and see that crushed goddess and help revive her, you know? So I think it's so hard for women, especially women of color. Um, and I think maybe in general, but I think women of color, there's a sense that you just can't have that kind of man, you know, like mm-hmm. the kind of guy who really will, you know, amplify you. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I see men struggling. At this age that I am, I have a lot of friends who are single or men who actually learned less and less to be with women. So you see what, what it does to, to even the greatest guy. So there's something about goddess and, you know, the goddess energy in the world, what it is, learning about it. You can buy books about it, the goddess in yourself, the goddess in the women. And if you orient towards people that way, if you, I mean, it's the simplest thing to see God in others, right? And especially in your friends. But if you can look at it in women in the particular ways that it can manifest that are specially needed, then you can think, what can I do to cultivate that? Thank you so much. That is a gem and one that I'm taking to heart. Thank you for your time. I promise there'll be more. I can't wait for more. This has been very, very inspiring. I love you so very much. much. I love you very much too. Ache.